A film to live in. A film in which I can spend evenings and afternoons smoking, reading, and sleeping. I've tried a hundred times to remake a Jarmusch tracking shot. I've never gotten close. They move at a speed that belongs only to him. Jarmusch is the metronome of a precious melancholy. Those are words from director Christophe Honoré on Jim Jarmusch's 1989 film, Mystery Train. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. This week we're discussing Mystery Train, so quick synopsis of the film is, three stories are connected by a Memphis hotel and the spirit of Elvis Presley. The film stars Masatoshi Nagasi as Jun, Yuki Kudo as Mitsuko, Nicolette Brashi as Louisa, Joe Stremmer as Johnny, Steve Buscemi as Charlie. Rick A. Viles as Will, Screaming Jay Hawkins as Night Clerk, and Sink Lee as the Bellboy. It's written by Jim Jarmusch, cinematography by Robbie Mueller, directed by Jim Jarmusch, edited by Melanie London, and music by John Lurie. So today my guest is Rala Tahir, and she is a filmmaker based in Toronto, and she's done so many different, you know, styles of film. I know that you also run the Arab Film Festival, and you also have a or you recently had a exhibit on, I would love to hear more about that and the festival and, you know, the short films that you've created and any features and just what your relationship is to cinema and the works of Robbie Mueller. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Felicia, for having me on uh, to talk about Mystery Train and Robbie Mueller. Well, my relationship, well, first I'll I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm an independent filmmaker and DP based here in Toronto. My background is actually in cinema studies. I went to, I graduated with a cinema studies specialist at, from U of T. Um, And so I didn't study film production, but eventually kind of Mm -hmm. made my way into it because of my interest in cinematography, actually, which stems from my love of photography. And so that's how how I kind of made my way into, into cinema. In terms of my film work, I started not knowing really what I wanted to do. And so I volunteered a lot on sets to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. it was through cinema studies, I knew I was really interested in cinematography, but I still didn't know that I wanted to be a cinematographer. But being on set kind of solidified my love for lighting and composition and camera work and just generally being behind the camera um, as a DP. And then later I developed an interest in directing and also writing a little bit because I wasn't seeing the kind of films coming my way, the kind of films I wanted to do. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. seeing scripts that were kind of on the same wavelength um, in terms of my interests, let's say. Mm-hmm. So now I do, yeah, I direct my own films. And when I can, when work kind of comes my way that interests me, I will DP as well. I'm currently in pre-production for my uh, first feature film, which I'm hoping to shoot mm-hmm. in. Congrats. Thank you. It's been a journey. I'm sure you you know a lot about the difficulty mm-hmm. of making independent work here in Canada. Um, yep. So yeah, that's been like a seven-year journey in the making. It started as a, a script and then sort of various, let's say, scenes from that script I adapted as short films to try to kind of get a sense of what I wanted the visuals to look like and what and just improve as a general storyteller. So yeah, and, and finally kind of culminated 
I think it was yeah end of last year when I finally got um, the grant from Telefilm to to make the feature. So Amazing. hopefully that'll help. And it's really funny and it's really kind of timely that you asked me to be here talking yeah. about Robbie Mueller and Jim Jarmusch and Vim Vendors because in all my like artist statements and vision for the films applying to all these different programs and grants, the mood of the film just like it's Jarmusch. My mood board is mm-hmm. is Jarmusch, you know, and so it's very. Um, it's very timely that we're talking about this. That's amazing. I love that. And I personally can't wait to watch it. I love these beginning because I also did cinema studies, but I had originally applied to go to school for photography because my interest was in cinematography, but then switched to cinema studies mainly because I just didn't think I fully had the eye <laughs> for photography. But it's cool the amount of experience you have because it's not often that you meet someone who is a director and who also knows how to operate a camera or you know how to properly light things and so on when you were talking about your beginnings in photography and switching to film it just reminded me of Agnes Varda and that's her start also so that's also a great segue from Varda who's the last month's focus to Mueller so you mentioned the vibe, at least for the, the feature that you're working on, is kind of along the mueller fender Sharmish wavelength. Do you recall when you first started noticing the works of Mueller? I started watching certain films of the vendors and Jim Jarmusch. I just liked them. I developed a taste for them. And then it was only last year when I watched Mystery Train that I started to realize that, oh, there's a point of connection. Mm-hmm. And that is Robbie Mueller. Um, and there's a reason why I like so much Vim Vendor and, and uh, Jim Jarmusch's films. It's because of the look and the feel and the mood. And the mood is the top priority of Robbie Mueller when he approaches his work. And so it just yes. makes sense. So I've been aware of the filmmakers, but I haven't, I put two and two together recently. Mm-hmm. as to yeah Robbie Mueller being the the collaborator between the two and then that again that coincided with kind of me being sort of working head-on developing the feature film and working on the mood boards and just applying to all these grants and really focusing on the look of the film and how I want it to feel that's when I started delving into uh the works of Robbie Mueller a bit more and I still have blind spots like a you know his later career mm-hmm. with Lars von Trier, for example, like that's a big blind spot for me. But then again, it's a great departure from his work with Jarmusch and Vendors, right? It's interesting to watch the way he kind of works so well with each director and have those specific things as opposed to being like, this is my vision and you have to adapt to it. He's very good at adapting. So the, the von Trier stuff looks nothing like a mystery train. It's purposely not beautiful. <laughs> And it's not supposed to be because they're dark movies. Exactly. And he's just, uh, I, I really admire his flexibility and his mm-hmm. unwavering dedication to the filmmakers he works with. Like, it's not about him. It's not even yes. about lighting and cinematography. It's about what's the story? What's the mood? Who are these characters? Like, what are we trying to convey here? And then everything becomes subservient to that, which, you know, I'm a, as much as I love cinematography, it's not the end all be all. Like, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. it's part of the sort of building blocks of the film. What I when I talk about directors, I'm always just like they're just one piece of this huge puzzle. There's a whole crew of people who worked on this who do need to be acknowledged. So, but those are all great points, and we will get into you know his vibes that he goes for and how the story is the most important part for him, especially. But before that, I'm going to just read a few fun facts about the film. These are all kind of facts that if you've seen the film, you probably know, or if you've seen Jarmusch's work, the radio DJ, the voices by Tom Waits. Every time I watch this movie, I always forget until I see the end credits. I was like, oh yeah, I should have known. (laughs) He has a very distinctive voice. 
And the, the film contains some of the last known footage of Stax Records in Memphis. And actually didn't realize that this was the first color film he had done, Jarmusch, uh, since Permanent Vacation, which is his very first film. I don't know if you've seen that one, Permanent Vacation. It's kind I of haven't. hard to find. I saw it, I think, as a teenager when I was first getting into his stuff because I really loved Down by Law. And from there, I was like, oh, okay. I need to find everything else, but I, I don't even know if Permanent Vacation's on Criterion Channel, but mm. it's definitely not as widely seen just because I think it was one that he had done in film school. Right. Another quick fact that I found was funny, and apologies if I'm butchering it, but Sinke Lee is the younger mm-hmm. brother of Spike Lee. And so he was the kind of bellboy or bellhop at the hotel next to Screaming Jay Hawkins. And the whole time I was watching it, especially this time, I was like, this guy looks so familiar. And then realizing, oh, it's because he's his brother. Can I actually, uh, this might be something mm-hmm. that you'll mention in the interesting facts about the film, but I don't know if you if you know this, but Mystery Train was one of the biggest budgets that Jarmusch was working with because it was financed by a Japanese tech company, mm-hmm. JDC or whatever. And it was... <laughs> He was very economical because he had this budget and, you know, all his collaborators right there. He was able to also film a segment of Coffee and Cigarettes with Sinkley and um, Steve Buscemi and Spike Lee's sister. Uh-huh. So playing okay, the twins yes. in that segment uh-huh. um, during the filming of Mystery Train. So he got like two films out of one. I didn't know about that second part. I, didn't, I knew that he had gotten a bunch of funding from a Japanese production company, but I didn't realize that he was able to film that at that point. Because didn't when did coffee and cigarettes come out? It was like early two thousands. Yeah, I was confused too. But then I real well, I did some research, and this a few segments had come out earlier as short films. I think one of them was even oh. maybe commissioned by SNL, and so that segment had come out by itself. And then later he shot six segments, added all together, and and created the feature. That's cool. I mean, hey, that is a good use of time and resources. Like I have you here, so. <laughs> Let's just do this on the side. I love that kind of work. Like I'm trying to yeah. think of how I can, you know, there's a lot of pre-production testing, like camera testing that I want to do. But mm-hmm. like, why just test in a studio? Why don't you just take the camera out on the road and on certain locations mm-hmm. that are similar to, you know, the feature film and test with actual lights and people and, and create yeah. short works that way? So we'll see. That's a very, you know, indie bare bones but as you said economical and smart way it's like work you know smarter not harder type of deal and i'm that i'm all for that (laughs) the hotel where the three stories come together is no longer standing a lot of people have gone to memphis to try and find it people who like to you know location scope when they're in a city but the last time it was seen was in the film great balls of fire (laughs) from 1989 a film with alec baldwin and he has like i actually haven't seen this film but there's a broken down car that I guess he's preaching in front of and the hotel's in the background. So that's the last time this is seen. Great title. I know of this movie. I had no idea Alec Baldwin was in it, but I'm going to have to search it up now (laughs) just so I can see the hotel. The last little quick one is just that the script was under the working title of One Night in Memphis. And he had never actually been in Memphis beforehand. The very first time he went was when he started filming this. He just had that story in his head of like the city of Memphis and the way people kind of idolize that city as outsiders because they are huge fans 
of Elvis and all the other music that came out of Memphis. Yeah, I don't think Mueller had been there even um, as well. And I, I really like that approach, I guess, or sort of having a feeling or instinct towards a location or even a subject matter that you're not necessarily, you know, you don't have experience with or you don't have a history with. You know, you could argue that his entry point to this film is music history, American music history. That's what, you know, fascinated him about Memphis and the relationship to Elvis and all of that as a physical space he's never been to before. But I actually, I like that because it provides an outsider's perspective that is that is more raw. And mm-hmm. I actually think actually more nuanced because it's not actually Robert, I think it was Robert Ebert in his review said, this is not the Memphis that the Chamber of Commerce approves of. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And I mean, that is what is striking about the film. Um, and mm-hmm. it's really amazing what Robbie Mueller is able to do with empty parking lots, with dilapidated hotels and bars. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, but we, we'll talk about that a bit later. We definitely will, because I've got a lot of uh, notes about that. But yeah. let's just let's just get into it. I was going to start off with how the film, the story, and like the visuals respect each of these characters. Oftentimes when you're watching a film, because we're, the Memphis that we're seeing is like a broken down. It's not, you know, the people around living in those areas are not well off. And yes, a lot of those characters that we're seeing, a few of them are outsiders coming in, but it never, you never feel like the film is judging anyone too much and not glamorizing poverty, but also not making them off to be like their lives are terrible either. It's just kind of factual. And I was going to read a quote that Jarmusch said about Mueller. And he said, the beautiful thing about Robbie is that he starts the process by talking to you about what the film means, what the story is about, what the characters are about. He starts from the inside out. So we kind of touched upon that earlier. He is so invested in learning about who these people are, who he's shooting. And you can kind of see it the way he follows each of the characters And there's like the slow tracking shots of following them. But I think he follows them in different ways, in the ways that they want to be followed. I don't know if you noticed that at all. I think that, you know, his style lends itself to respecting characters, the way that, Mm -hmm. you know, how steady the camera is, um, the tracking shots, and just his focus on like the master shot, as well as the medium shot. Like, if you hear him talk about his process, he's not always talking about like, actually, he despises talking about gear and camera and lens choices and Mm -hmm. all that. He actually talks about the importance of blocking and doing everything so that the actors have the room and the space not only to follow the script but also to improvise with him and sort of like the lighting crew having minimal um, interruptions and so that is what I noticed the most they're always framed in a way that is it's not necessarily prominent in the in the shot because I think there's a lot of things that are prominent in the shot if you like look at Mm -hmm. one shot it's really interesting how without using close-ups He'll draw your attention to not only the characters, but cert- like in this film, you know, the frames of uh, Elvis Presley in, in the in the hotel, in the hotel rooms, but also the exterior of the hotel. And obviously certain things like his use of color, uh, making yeah. other things pop within the shot. So I think all of this attention that is paid to the, I don't want to call it a master shot, but to the, like, let's say it's not even an establishing shot. It's just let's call it his primary shot because that's the one he stages and he stays there. Mm -hmm. But he pays such meticulous attention to everything within it, which is so difficult to do. That is what gives the characters their, like again, their respect and their prominence in in the scenes. As you said, he doesn't typically do the close-ups. So uh, unless it calls for that, 
you know, the scene itself, but he shoots it in a way where we're not losing the actors, we're not losing the characters in the frame, but it allows your eyes to kind of wander and be like, a lot of the scenes I remember, even that just from them, like certain characters walking down the street is, yes, I see them walking, but I'm also like, oh, look at that thing in the background there. You know, look at that neon light on the building when it's, you know, the sun's going down or even just seeing the hotel in the background or the, the diner lights in the background. And yeah. I, as someone who doesn't have the technical background, I don't even know how you would <laughs> do any of that. You know, just from reading interviews with him and the way he likes to shoot it, he always says he never wants anything in the frame to be kind of, or he never wants to force the viewer into looking at a specific thing. He always is just like, you look at what you want in the, in the frame itself, and I'm providing you with all of this. And sometimes it could be like, you know, a cup on a table that's not even important but you might find it important because of the way it's placed. So I, I like that about uh, his style of work. And as you said, like respecting the characters. I don't know how many how many other cinematographers work that way where they're very invested in the characters themselves and their motivations. So that just adds to, like another layer to his style. Yeah, for me, it's not even just about respecting the characters, but he's said this, it's about respecting the audience too. And mm -hmm. like you said, if, you know, he's providing all this information in a frame, but if you want, if you wanted to look at a cup as opposed to, you know, the main character monologuing, that's fine. And I, I think to me that that adds like rewatch value and like mm -hmm. intrigue and interest as well. And that's why he's not, he doesn't often use the, you know, zoom lenses because he wants you to, he just, yeah, respects your intelligence <laughs> as if you, yeah. yeah, it's the, the least you could ask for it in uh, someone who's creating a film and <laughs> putting it out yeah. there for you. There is a point here I do want to just quickly mention about tracking shots in a quick quote that I read in an article as they were talking about mystery trains. So they say the tracking shots are slow and wide, emphasizing the environment as much as the characters populating them. The results are equal parts documentary and dream. So kind of bring it to something you mentioned in terms of rewatch value. Every time I watch one of his films, I notice something completely different. And the documentary aspect to that also is kind of like, at least when I'm watching a documentary, maybe the first time I'm listening purely to the story, the second time I'm noticing, why do they shoot in this location? If it's not like a Talking Heads documentary. I think the way he's shooting this film treats it as a way to kind of learn about these specific characters in that moment, in the, the 24 hours that they're there. So how do you feel about kind of the aspect of someone kind of calling this documentary like? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I do see that point, but I never viewed his... I mean, I think I understand it in the sense that his films... Yeah, and have this rewatch value, but especially a film like Mystery Train, for example. To me, like, I don't have the background of music. Like, for example, I was watching it with my husband, who's a music producer, and, you know, he was pointing out certain things. Like, this is the voice of Tom Waits. This is uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know? Like, I don't have that history. And so in that sense, to me, it's intriguing enough to go and look up all these interesting facts and not just mm -hmm. about the music and the musicians uh, and the history, but also about you know, Memphis and his decision to shoot in certain streets and the train station and this particular hotel and, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So in that sense, it's a lot more subtle than a documentary, I'd say that, which I appreciate. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, okay, I can see where the where they are coming from. And parts of it, I agree with parts of it. I'm like, as you said, it's a lot more subtle than that, but not to harp on it, but I, I could see, I just thought that was interesting point because I immediately i never would have immediately thought of documentaries 
when thinking of mystery train no definitely not i mean it's it's very structured right like it's mm-hmm. very staged even though robbie mueller tends to want to work with like very minimal equipment a lot mm-hmm. of natural light and minimal involvement in the sort of manufacturing of the shot but it's they still they're still very stylized and so in that mm-hmm. sense i don't necessarily yeah i don't see the the documentary connection but in, in terms sort of on like a thematic level it's yeah it could play like a documentary in the sense that i'm interested to learn more about the history of you know elvis and the city of memphis and these kind these studios and, and all of that anytime i watch this Maybe it's just because I'm not I'm not not a fan of Elvis. I do like his stuff, but he's not someone I'm a hyper fan of. So every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, I guess it's people who have dedicated their lives to this man. And like, this is not an exaggeration like this film. There's people who are probably even more intense than anyone in this film. So that's interesting. Yeah. Which brings us on to Memphis as kind of like an unusual character in this film. So even with like a Paris, Texas, where the locations are kind of background characters, Memphis is also both a background character as in like visually it's unremarkable. Because I don't know anything about Memphis, if this had nothing to do with Elvis, I don't know how much I would have noticed right away that this is Memphis per se, other than like signs. But because it, all these characters are kind of coming together in this city for a specific reason, I'm wondering how you feel about the fact that this is all like location shooting and as you said, using the natural light and we're getting natural light from just obviously outside and like the businesses around how you feel about if you think Memphis kind of overpowers the story or if it's like a good balance between the, what the characters are doing and just being a backdrop to what they're doing. I don't necessarily think um, that it's overshadowing the characters or the story. I mean, I'd be interested to know if Jarmusch actually wrote the story because he was interested in Memphis or Memphis as the birthplace of Elvis. Mm -hmm. I always just thought it was the latter, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I yeah, I definitely don't think it's it it overpowers the characters. I find the characters to be very compelling, actually, even though they're very you could say ordinary, except maybe the first couple. Mm -hmm. But I find them to be you know weird, eccentric, funny, and I think that that's the draw more so than the city. I think their placement within the city that elevates it. But I think if you take these characters, not necessarily these characters, but characters adjacent to this and place them in mm-hmm. a different city, it's I think it's just the examination or the look of a certain class, let's say, of people within a city that is that I find more interesting than Memphis itself. Again, I don't really know much about Memphis, but I'm thinking, for example, Jarmusch's recent film, Patterson. I don't mm-hmm. remember what city it was in, but it's, it was about the characters and also the city was unremarkable, right? So mm-hmm. For me, I see his films more as character studies rather than um, an ode to a particular location. I agree because I think, as you said, like you could take these characters, those stories, and place them in some other random town in the state. And I think they would still be operating. Maybe, yeah, the Elvis bit is not there, but they are still interesting enough on their own without their love of Elvis. And I think it's very, and this is outside of Mueller, but I do love the fact that you never actually see Graceland in this film. This is not really about Memphis. It's about these people who happen to be in Memphis at this moment. I don't know if you have, and I'm sure I don't want to force you into picking just one, but if you have a couple shots that stand out to you, and I'm sure it probably changes on each watch, but in this past watch, if there's a couple shots that, you know, has stuck with you. The one that that jumps at me is in 
the first segment with the Japanese couple. And I think it was just the guy, I forget his name, but he was looking out the window from the hotel room. And you can see the different planes all in focus and sharp focus. This is at night, which is very hard to do mm-hmm. lighting wise. But you can see the interior, you can see him at the window, and you can see beyond that. I think a train even passes in the distance. And obviously, like the way it's framed and the way it's staged is is compelling, but also just the way that he separates the sort of foreground, background, and sort of where the character is with the various lights. So like, you know, the street up, the street lamps outside, I think you can see some sort of marquees from businesses in the exterior, and then the lighting in, in the room. It's really difficult to control all these little aspects and nuances within a frame that wide, let's say. It, it's not really a, a super wide frame, but a frame that includes all these elements. It's hard to con- control. But that is what I love about his work is the sort of the meticulousness and the care he takes in staging and lighting and paying attention to literally every little part of it. Yeah. But yeah, that one stands stands out. I don't even know how you would how your brain would have to operate in order to take into account all of those elements. <laughs> especially the way in that shot itself every time as i said i watch this i see something different that i love for some reason the one that stuck out the most in this viewing was when nicoletta's walking and she's kind of basically running away from tom noonan as one does (laughs) because he's terrifying in this movie and it's starting to get dark and i think it's the same extract street that the japanese couple are also walking down when they're holding their their bag i'm pretty sure it is and it's just kind of the way you see like some of the business lights shining on behind her and it just creates like an extra layer of tension i'm like girl you need to get out because i'm scared for you you can tell she's trying to keep her cool but the way she's lit just shows that she is mortified and being like i do not know where i am like I'm in the middle of nowhere in Memphis, never been here. So it's yeah. that. It's just creating the atmosphere, but also allowing the character to do their thing, the actor, as opposed to being like, you should feel this way because I'm lighting her this way. That's really interesting because, but I think what's really cool about that scene and that the beginning of that segment is how playful it is. Like it could play more of as a, as a thriller and this man is more of mm-hmm. a, can present more of a danger, but you know, she holds her own and she, it doesn't become about this interaction, right? The rest of the segment, the rest of her story, which, which I really like, like despite how desolate the city is, I never, or like the city is portrayed. I never felt an impending sense of doom or danger, right? Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with Mueller's work and the playfulness with which he uses certain colors and lights. Because despite the cool tones that kind of, you know, overtake the film, there's pink in the marquee. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, the obviously the red everywhere in the suitcase and the lipstick and Screaming Jay Hawk- Hawkins' um, suit in the hotel, yeah. right? So I think that introduces a level of um, levity. I think, Mm -hmm. which I really love. Like, I like that approach of like no extremities and no, nothing is being sensationalized here. Right. Yes. I think playful is probably like the best word for this because there are some serious things that happen, like that scene where it could have gone, you know, one way as opposed to the way that it went. But then even in the third segment, when we get to Joe Strummer's character, he's got the gun, he's wielding it around, and then he does eventually shoot someone. And not that the film doesn't take that seriously, because, I mean, they say that he only injured him, as far as we know. (laughs) But the way it's shot and the, like, harsh yellows in that, you know, 
off license after hours a I don't know, beer store, whatever that is in the States. I'm not sure what they would call those. And then they run back into the car and just there is a playfulness. It's not full on comedy, but it's not a full on drama. It's just mixing those genres and him being able to shoot that. So I think playful is great. Great word for especially with I think his work with Jarmish, who I think a lot of people think is super serious, but I'm like, I don't know that he takes things as seriously as you think he does. He's very matter of fact. His comedy is like deadpan and, you Mm -hmm. know, yeah, I don't think he's his works can be characterized as drama per se. No, there's a quote that I want to read from another article, and this is just jumping back a little bit to Memphis, but I think it kind of talks about, you know, what we were mentioning, what we might know or may not know about Memphis. So they, they say the way cinematographer Rami Mueller shoots the streets of Memphis in Mystery Train also feels like it's wrestling with the city's past while depicting where it was in the late 80s. So I think you mentioned in Roger Ebert's quote that, you know, this is not the Memphis that I'm sure they would want to be seen. And I don't think it's trying to make it uglier than it is. But I think if I were to ask someone who might have an inkling of what Memphis looks like, they probably have a, maybe a 50s version in their head. And at this point, is the 80s. I don't know what it looks like in 2023. But I like that it didn't try and bring it back to where it was when Elvis was at the height of it. It's very matter of fact. So as someone who also doesn't know anything about Memphis, were you kind of shocked to to see the way it looked when you first saw this film? No, because I, you know, if I, if I'm interested in a film and I was right off the bat, by virtue of it being a Jim Jarmusch film, but also just the characters in the beginning, again, I find very compelling. I put enough trust in the filmmaker to just let me know what's going on and to, to tell mm-hmm. me how it is. And again, knowing Jarmusch, he's not about finding beauty, you know, in, in, in a physical space or whatever. And later learning more about Mueller, he mm-hmm. actually, I think at least for the majority of his career, like he was more interested in shooting in black and white than color because he felt that color was very exotic, which is really interesting because this film, I, you know, color is very important to this film, um, especially after, yeah. you know, Jarmusch having worked in like black and white for a while. So it wasn't jarring for me because I just kind of let myself be. And I think that's like the, that, that to me is a very high compliment to be able to just like lose myself in a film and just let it tell me what's happening. That's kind of how I did the film and how I experienced it. What I found to be more interesting about the film is just its integration of um, lore, like Elvis, particularly like Elvis lore mm-hmm. within the city and how the various characters had these like weird interactions and visions and um, histories, let's say, with Elvis. So like, again, that's the connection with the city that I found to be more interesting, like its history and, and how that that manifested over the decades till the 80s where we're, when we're watching the film as opposed to the geography of the city itself which is not again like i had no preconceived notions of what that looked like and so it wasn't quite on my radar i think admittedly probably the first time i watched it because i was probably a late teenager early 20s and just knowing memphis in connection to elvis and no other reason why it would no offense to Memphis, but I don't know that there's any other reason why I would know as people who live in Canada. But I remember when it first opens up and then you get the train station and then the couple are walking through and just my immediate thought was like, oh, they're lost. As opposed to being like, oh, no, that's just what it looks like. Why does the train station need to be pretty? It doesn't really need to be. It's just a place where people pass through. It doesn't need to look gorgeous. It doesn't need to be, you know, your Grand Central station, which is also not even that pretty. It just 
often looks nice and clean in films, even though it's absolutely disgusting if you've ever been there. (laughs) (laughs) But I just think that it is Elvis that's bringing all this together. And I think that Mueller understood that perfectly and being like, it's not about the location. It's about the reason why that they're all at this location. You know, it's some of them do live there. But the two two leads in the other two stories are outsiders and they're there for a short time and then they move on the next day, the next couple of days. So yeah. one of the the other points I do want to touch upon is the fact that this is three different stories. They do have intertwining things, but they never actually kind of fully not not everyone meets each other, but they're happening at the same time. I don't know if I was just maybe reading into this, but I felt like the way each story was shot was very distinct. And up until like the second one where they also, she also ends up at the hotel. I don't know that I would have known, oh, this is all taking place at the same time. They're all going to be at this hotel because they all seem very distinct from one another. I don't know if you felt that with the way he shoots each characters in this film. Definitely. I think that, I mean, for me, the the segment that stands out is the third one because it's still very, I'm not, it's not as slow paced as the first two, but it's still like mm-hmm. kind of in the vein of, of Jarmusch. But because of the, I guess, the subject matter and the involvement of a gun, there's a bit of more, you know, hyperactivity involved. And so, and then with the first two segments, I think first segment, the couple are often shot, right, like together, whether Mm -hmm. it's a tracking shot or just kind of, you know, in the hotel, static, them sitting on the floor, whatever. And then with with the second segment, I felt it was a bit more mobile, less static, following the main character um, Mm -hmm. until they get to the hotel, that is. But yeah, definitely. And I think that even slightly the colors might feel slightly different different again like i think blues overtake all three segments but like you said in the third segment there's like yellow is quite prominent for me in the first like pink and red i don't quite remember what color was more dominant in the second one they're all so different and that's why i only bring that up because when you see stills from this if you google you know this film the first stills that usually come up are from the first segment i feel like that's the one I don't know if that's everyone's favorite segment or that's just the one that stands out because it's a, it's an interesting story to have like two Japanese people who are obsessed with Elvis and traveled all the way over to Memphis of all places in America. So as you said, the way they're shot and just having the couple be very cool visually and there's just so many shots that stand out from them they're very stylish. So I could see people using that whole segment as like a mood board for a film and just being like, yeah, that's the kind of stylized look I'm going for. So I just find it interesting that that's the one that people always remember the most. I think it's the most stylized if I had to, to pick one for sure. But it's aided by the fact that these are two outsiders coming into Memphis and they very much stand out, right? Mm-hmm. My, my favorite segment, I mean, I'll, I'll be basic and I'll say the first one, but I really love the second as well and i think the third is just a good it's like a good ending to the film yeah the first two again like i said are a bit more slow and more observed the second one is more kinetic uh, sorry the third one is more kinetic which i like i enjoy that shift in tone kind of turns into like a buddy film at the end but like in a good way it doesn't feel like oh we're trying to force comedy into this and it's always cool to see like joe strummer because i i remembered he was in it but i was like when is he showing up and steve Semi, who's always great right 
Uh, I think, I don't know, on this watch, the second one might have been my favorite. I don't know why. I just thought there was a lot of cute little things with her when she's getting sold the magazines and then she's walking down the street with a stack of magazines that she absolutely does not want. And then the the girl that she meets at the hotel and how she just talks so much. And I was like, I thought I talked a lot, but I hope I don't talk to that level because that's a lot. I was like, girl, let her sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of the Elvis lore, the second one is the most interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It didn't quite make as much sense as the you know the first one and the third one, but but I like that. It's funny. It's funny having that Elvis ghost story and then seeing <laughs> Ghost Elvis. Yeah. And I had watched Twenty Four Hour Party People, and there's kind of like a ghost scene in that. So he had done it twice and it, it always just it looks fun you know it's not what else are you going to do with that type of scene it's just kind of a fun little thing to see and it takes you out of it for a second but it doesn't overstate its welcome i find where you're just like yeah this makes sense for this story in this moment to be happening yeah and i mean this is a, a shift in conversation maybe but for me like if somebody were recommending a film about Elvis, like American icon, I would rather they recommend Mystery Train than mm-hmm. you know, something more obvious, like Baz Luhrmann's recent film. Yeah, right? like a biopic. Yeah, it invites me to kind of find out more about Elvis as opposed to just being told, you know, what kind mm-hmm. of cultural icon he was, which is not necessarily, I don't know, it's not that exciting. And again, it doesn't really respect the audience's intelligence, right? Um, there's nothing interesting to me about that. So I, I really, what I love about Mueller and, and Jarmusch's collaboration is just like the subtlety of their work. I think that's that's an interesting point because I, I think I'd also want to be recommended this film because what makes anyone famous is are their fans, but specifically with Elvis and why he's lived on or the people he's affected. So how everyone has just continued bringing him to life in their own way, whether he's at the side of a road or, you know, Tom Noonan's telling you in a diner. <laughs> The scene is just so funny to me where he, you can see he's looking at her and you, I don't even think you have to be a woman to be like, oh God, this is going to be, a, <laughs> he's going to harass her. And he just sits right down. But as you said, she holds her own. More so than I would, I would have been like, can you to leave immediately? For sure. I do not want to be in this situation. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like she entertains him, you know, listens to the story, gives him the money, right? Like she could have been like, no, you know, mm-hmm. that's BS, but. She's like, whatever, just take your 20 and leave me alone. I mean, he does yeah. He comes back, but. Unfortunately. But yeah. yeah. Are there any other points of the film that you want to discuss in terms of the visual aspects and Mueller? Uh, whoa, it's <laughs> a lot. See yeah, what I, I want to bring up. I mean, for me, Mystery Train is kind of cool, even though it came after. It did come after Paris, Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. I saw it. I saw it before Paris, Texas, and not okay. because I wasn't I wasn't aware of Paris, Paris, Texas, but because I want it. There are a few films that I that are kind of blind spots that I consciously kind of avoid until they play on a big screen because I want mm. to experience them th- that way. So Paris, Texas was one of them, and I only saw it again like last year at the Paradise when it played there. But okay, nice. it's one of those things where you know so much about the film beforehand that when you're watching it, it's hard to disassociate from what you've read about it and what you know about it. And so even though somebody, you know, having seen Paris, Texas will see Mystery Train as maybe quote unquote inconsequential because it's maybe a bit similar, but at a lower level, let's say it's not as epic. I find them to be quite similar in the way they're shot and also this the significance of them. Like, I mean, Paris, Texas is seen as a, you know, a very important piece of Americana. And I take Mystery Train to be something 
similar, right? Maybe again, it's because I don't know too much about Memphis or Elvis. And this was my introduction to it. And again, it's really interesting that it's coming from a quote unquote outsider, right? Both of yeah. them. But yeah, it's 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 really interesting how little people talk about Mystery Train in both Jim Jarmusch and Mueller's overall work because I find them to be, yeah, quite similar actually. It is weird that Mystery Train is not even talked about as widely in terms of Jarmusch's work. And not that this like is a standing and an importance but i know it was one of the later criterions that got released of his stuff because i was looking at it i had an old dvd copy of this and i was like did they ever release it and i know they did and it might have been a couple years back now but his other stuff like down by law and and so on are one of the very first criterions that were ever released so it's weird to me because i always when i think of jamish i i always thought of mystery train because just like visually that film stands out the most and like you said, with about the outsiders, and even in this case, Jarmusch is also an outsider to Memphis. I know with Paris, Texas and vendors that Mueller and him kind of got together where they're like, okay, we do not, this is foreign terrain to us. We don't know this area, right? So how do we shoot this in a way where we're not marveling at it? For me, I'm looking at the you know, desert landscapes and I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. It might not even really be that because I'm, but I'm not used to it. So the way I would shoot it would also be like, oh, this is gorgeous as to being like, this is the way it looks. And I think that comes across in Mystery Train as well. As you said, it's just like, this is just what Memphis is. No difference. Other than like, yeah, it's obviously a little bit more beautiful than if I was walking down the street. Which is ironic because Mueller was all about beauty destroys drama and he was very against beautifying an image um, and taking away from from the story and the characters. But I mean, I always characterize his work up until a certain point and also Jarmusch's work as observational. And I think mm-hmm. when I hear Mueller talk about his approach to lighting, it's all about observation. I think there's a website, I think, that exists of his photographs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think he started out as an apprentice to a photographer, a Dutch photographer or a painter. I'm not quite sure. And for him, it's all about just watching the light hit a certain object or a character and how the light changes over the in a location over a certain a certain time or whatever so mm-hmm. even though i you know came to these landscapes as an outsider and i'm sure he was marveling at them he maybe took a step back after he marveled at them and just observed them right and then decided yeah. how to frame them in a way that is again subservient to the story as opposed to something that you just that takes you out of the story really mm-hmm. I find that to be the case, yeah, with a lot of recent work. And and I mean, he talks this about this a lot. He and Jarmusch were not really interested in any camera antics or lighting tricks or whatever. And that's why he didn't talk about them a lot, because he didn't use mm-hmm. them a lot. For him, it was just about working with like minimal crew, minimal equipment, and having the flexibility to, yes, you test before in pre-production, but also he said he wants to find the scene on set and he criticized the use of storyboards and also mm-hmm. like the video village. And just he preferred to be behind the camera and look through the camera lens, which I is something that I very much aspire to because there's there's a disconnect when you're watching a monitor and you're watching the waveforms as opposed to the actual action that's happening right in front of you. Why would you watch a video monitor of it, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's I think the key here is observation. Just observing mm-hmm. something and then letting your instinct tell you how to frame it within the story. Yeah. When you were talking about looking at the action through the monitor as opposed to just actually looking at it, it just, my mind just went to when you go to see like a band play live and someone's recording, but you can see that they're watching it through and I'm like, but it's happening right there. Right. <laughs> you it's know, so- 
it's just a funny thing to do and it's just like a natural to be like oh i want to see make sure that i'm getting it right but you could just like move your head over a little bit <laughs> just to watch <laughs> he's a, a master of, of observation but even you know you, i say observation and that could be interpreted as you are depicting something as is and even though his films are seem to be ordinary and matter of fact they're actually quite stylized mm-hmm Again, because of, I mean, even when he's not using color and working with black and white, like there's very high contrast. And if you look at the compositions, they're quite, especially like he's, um, like people talk a lot about how he frames characters in cars and how he's a master of that kind of lighting car interiors and composing for car interiors, which is true. It's just, it's very stylized, but it, it's not, again, it's not the first thing that comes to mind when you're watching the film. I think that is something that you realize after because, oh, yeah. again, it's it serves the story and the character. Yeah. I think it's just as much as he is not looking for the beauty in things, it's his, like, immense talent that just makes things look beautiful. So he might not be trying, but, like, there's a reason why we're talking about him and why he's continued to be talked about and why people aspire to, you know, just utilize and admire light the way he did. Because... You were mentioning the car, you know, how he lights cars. And there is that one scene in the third segment when the three of them are in the car. And it's basically pitch black outside apart from any streetlights. But you can see them clearly enough, but not so clear that you're like, okay, they're shooting a light in there so that we can see them. It's like probably the amount of light that you would see if I was standing in front of the car. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea how we did that. It's sleight of hand. Honestly, it's not like lighting night scenes is so difficult Mm -hmm. that, and to do it with minimal resources as he did like early in his career is baffling to me. I can't, I mean, he, he made a comment here and there about what he would use and how he would hide certain lights in, in the scenes. Mm -hmm. But again, very, very minimal, minimal. Like if you see production, like big budget productions at night it's it's insane how the amount of lights that exist and I'm like but it's at night and it's all yeah. about they I, I think it's a bit backwards because he wants to work with a minimal crew and a minimal equipment to give him the flexibility to move around quickly and change a shot if he needs to but then with these big budgets they have all these lights set up in order to have the flexibility to cut light yeah as they need I'm like that's a bit backwards yeah. Why don't you just add the lights that you need? But I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here. No, I mean, he talks about it. I think his very first big production that he did was a film called Honeysuckle Rose. And that was a big Hollywood production. And they were doing some outside scene. And I think it was at night. And they came with all the lighting. And he was like, but why are it's like you said, it's nighttime. Why are they here? And he told them to go away. And I remember he... I guess the other members of the crew were just like, oh, God, this is not going to end well for him. Because they just figured he would realize that he was wrong and need them to come back. Yeah. But then they got the shot. He was just like, I don't need you guys. You can still get paid, but <laughs> yeah. I don't need you <laughs> to do this. That's why he didn't like working on. He didn't really do that many big, you know, Hollywood productions. No, which is, you know, I find amazing that he's able to. I mean, again, it was a different time, but that he's he was yeah. able to sustain a career that long, not working within the system. And it was very much a conscious decision. And what I respect about it is that it was it wasn't just about his distaste of the style of work, but also he and this is something that I very much want to live by uh, as I make films. He didn't want to contribute to content 
basically, that mm-hmm. didn't add any value that was all about generating money. And he said this verbatim, I can't remember which interview or where, that he wanted to make to contribute to films that mattered to him, that weaved and made sense into his the balance of his life and that interests him and intrigued him and provided him with certain challenges. I really, really, really love that. And I hope I find that as I grow in my work, I there is this tension and push and pull between wanting to have a sustainable career and basically earn money to live doing what yeah. I do, but also not contributing to the to fluff and commerce and in, in, in a way that basically takes over your life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it, it was a different time where people had more leeway, especially post the 70s, to be more independent in their work styles or the films that they chose. And he was lucky that he has those partnerships with directors who they kind of grew together and build their careers together. So you got the vendors, the Jarmusch and, you know, Von Trier. And then he would do other films like he did Freakins to Live and Die in L.A. It's that balance of being like, I want to do something that I actually want to watch, but you need to make money in some sort of sense. He also just never lived in the States, so he didn't have to worry about having to afford a huge LA mansion. So that probably helped too. <laughs> yeah, but these are choices that people can make, right? And, and I mean, mm-hmm. I get it is, I'm not saying it's not difficult now. It is infinitely more difficult. But as you work in film and you study film, you're told that this is the way, but you know yeah. what? It's, it's not. You can do whatever you want, right? Uh, you don't have to do a storyboard if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Which I love. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think back in my time at film school if we even watched any films that he had done, which is fine. Like, we're not studying cinematography, but I think it's still so important. And I don't know why his name didn't really come up that much. And... Sometimes I have a hard time distancing myself from the people I know and my own interest in realizing that not everyone's a nerd. And I'm like, how do you, oh, you never heard of like Robin Mueller? And not in a like dismissive way, just being like, oh, and I was like, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't really care. But for the people who do, it's wild that he's not talked about more, I think. Agreed. And also, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I didn't know until recently, right? Um, I didn't know that he was the frequent collaborators Mm -hmm. of these filmmakers that I really love. But I do find it interesting that he's not as recognized. It's because he didn't work within the system. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he probably prefers it that way because he's like, I don't need to be the name. I don't think he cares. Yeah, so which, which I, I respect. Which I love. Yeah, I, I I wish to aspire to that to that level of uh, yeah indifference. Let's say as long as you're content with your work, that is something to aspire to. To just be like, I am confident in what I have to offer, so everything else is extra. I don't really care about that. It's beyond your uh, control. Beyond your control. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Any other points that stick out? that you want to cover? There is one interesting fact, but it's about yeah. Mis- Mystery Train rather than Mueller himself. But yeah, that's okay. I think this was on the Wikipedia page, actually. But uh, Bell Hooks uh, cited that the interaction in the Memphis train between uh, Thomas, who's the Black character who comes in to ask the Japanese couple for a smoke or like to light their cigarettes. I can't remember yeah. what it was. But as one of the few examples of nuanced, deconstructive and subversive treatment of Blackness in American film, which I thought was really interesting. I haven't, I mean, I'm trying to get her book, which is not, um, it's called Real to Real Race, Sex and Class at the Movies. Mm, Surprisingly, okay. not the, not at the library, but uh, to read oh. more about about her comments on on film. But I thought that that was a, like, it's a very, again, it returns to the subtlety of 
the Jarmusch and, and Mueller's work. They don't linger on the scene. It's just that the character I don't think appears in the film again, but it's it's true. It's like a representation yeah. of a Black character, not very in line with what's being sort of portrayed at that time, right? And it's, it's fleeting. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I did read about some of the, the portrayals of like, race relations in the film without it being this is what the film is about it's just a, like matter of fact and it never lingers on there's even the scene in the third segment where i think it's joe strummer's character asks why there are only pictures of elvis here if we're in a black neighborhood there's a black run hotel and then one of the guys is like oh because it's white people who own this hotel so they're gonna have elvis and it's not like they continued that conversation it was just that's it Okay, facts. You know, I like that. Me too. I think Jeremish is pretty good, you know, at handling stuff like that and not pretending that, you know, race relations are not a thing, but not harping on it in a way where it's like sometimes with white directors where they're trying a little too hard and you're like to course correct <laughs> yeah yeah we're not yeah. we're not here to do that that's a great point i hadn't read about that and bell hooks quote on there that looks, okay yeah i didn't know she wrote a book about her thoughts on various films definitely want to read that oh same that sounds like the perfect book <laughs> for me well there's so much to talk about <laughs> with mystery train so that that leads us into the last segment then I think maybe I can gauge what your answer might be just in this conversation. But the first question in the end credits is if someone comes up to you and asks you what film to start off with, if they're, you know, noticing the name Robbie Mueller, I never really seen any of the films he's worked on. Where should I start? Would you recommend they start with Mystery Train? I definitely would recommend Mystery Train because it's not as slow paced, slow moving as some of his other work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's engaging enough visually, but also in terms of the story and its levity and also the Elvis connection. That could be like a sort of nice, easy entry point to someone who's not familiar with Mueller's work. Yeah. So that's definitely my pick. What about you? What would you say? Well, it's weird. Every time I do, depending on like the the person in question, Mueller's kind of a hard one because he has so many beautiful films. So I think it would be up there. I usually give Paris, Texas, but because I'm biased, I love that movie. But talking about Mystery Train and having rewatched it, I think it would be such a great spot to start off with and branch off from there because it is probably the most visually, along with Paris, Texas, but like visually captivating because of those colors like pop out. And it's just a fun story. So if you like the way this film looks, then you can go and move forward from there and you can either continue with his color films or you can go to the black and white i mean i think you should do all of them you know go both ways but sometimes when you recommend a black and white film to watch first people are stuck in that visual and they're like okay this is i can only see them doing this but he was obviously great at doing both so mystery train would be a great and it's just it's not as slow as other jarmish films there's still a fun story and you get it's broken up in three Mm -hmm. so i think it'd be a good good spot to start yeah good starter for sure second question is the double bill and you don't have to give me just one film because usually most people are like okay what's the the vibe who am i making this double bill for so they usually pair it depending on that so if you were creating a double bill either for yourself or for someone else what film would you pair this one with and why that's a really interesting question. I thought about it in terms of the visual aspect, first and foremost, but then I also paired it with a film where 
the story. There's a bit of a connection there thematically in terms of the story. Mm-hmm. The film is Ariel by Aki Karismaki. Have you seen it? No, but I do have one of his on my double bill. Okay. <laughs> Which one do you have? I had Drifting Clouds. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I must, uh, I must see it. I picked Ariel because so European films, I think, are have very different sensibilities than American films. But then I see Mueller as a bit of a connection between the two sensibilities. And I just let's see, Mystery Train is about outsiders coming into the city and then out of the city, kind of like they're like um, transient beings. But mm-hmm. then Ariel is about well it's actually about an outsider coming into a city and finding life to be so difficult there and then trying so hard to leave the city um so it's it's similar in that sense but it's and it's again like very observational observational deadpan i find it to be a lot more in subject matter at least a lot more dramatic and heavy but also Mm -hmm. because of the way it's shot and approached and its approach to characters and mood as well and tone it's very similar to mystery train in that yeah there's a bit of the deadpan playfulness there. It's really interesting how, like, if you know what the film is about and how dark it is, really. <laughs> like, I mean, the mm-hmm. film starts with the main character losing his job, his dad um, shooting himself, him going to the city, being robbed, being Damn. imprisoned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seven hour but day. It does not make you want to, you know, slit your wrists, I promise. No, yeah. It's, not like yeah. a Von Trier. Yeah. Oh, God, no. 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 That's why I have a <laughs> bit of a distance from, from Von Trier because I, I don't like the extremities, right? And yeah. so I really respect the fact that despite this very dark subject matter, it its approach is more, again, matter of fact. And so, yeah, that's why that's why I, I paired it with, with Mystery Train. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I feel the exact same way about Karis Mackey's work and I haven't seen all of it his stuff yet but it's my goal for this year to finish because i i love his work and the reason why he was one of the first to come up was because it's like it's a vibe it's a mood that he has throughout the film and sometimes as you said a lot of them even drifting clouds is dark too and depressing but you never feel like you want to kind of die watching it it's kind of whimsical might not be the best word for it but it's still a nice story to watch unfold and i think it's the same with mystery train the other one that I kind of thought of outside of the Charismaki one was a Roy Anderson one, Do the Living, mm-hmm. only because it was those vignettes and the slower pacing is definitely much slower than Mystery Train. But the visual aspect is very gray, most of the film, but it lends itself. I feel like it's something that a, a Mueller would like. Charismaki, mm-hmm. I think, has, I don't even know, actually, it's probably bad that I didn't check who was the DP on that film, but the colors pop kind of in a similar way that they do in mystery train yeah. not as not as bright <laughs> but no but it's a running thread in, in Karismaki's films again like composition and, and color uh which is why like again yeah he's very much part of my influence and, and inspiration because he's yeah his approach is similar to drum rush in a way i definitely will de- be doing a Karismaki month so you'll have to come back for that <laughs> and cool Thank you so much for coming on. I, I think this is great. I, I learned a lot about, you know, the technical side and I admire your ability to just create films. It's an insane feat that most of us will aspire to. And yes, your enthusiasm about Mueller's work and Jarmish and definitely will be doing a Jarmish month. So come back for that too. If you have time, I know you're quite busy now either way i'll get your thoughts on uh jarmish because i'd I'd love to hear more about his influence on you and just the you know your love for his work but thank you 
I'd love to. No, thank you. And also thanks for um, heeding our calls to create a podcast. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited. <laughs> yeah, until someone is like, okay, that's enough, ma'am. <laughs> 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 Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. Intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and write the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And thanks for joining us for our Robbie Mueller Month. <laughs>